Welcome back to the 118th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two that are talking about the new SCOTUS decision in the battle over the EPA rules. We'll have both sides of that for you. And our final article will ask the question, is America still a free trade nation? And the answer may surprise you. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. All right, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. How much power should regulatory agencies have? You know, they're not necessarily always elected officials. They're kind of bureaucrats that work in these agencies. And they're given a lot of discretion to kind of make their rules and regulations however they want. Of course, they are given bounds by the legislator, but they have a lot of leeway. So should they basically be able to create rules and regulations out of whole cloth? Or should there be more restrictions on them? Because a lot of the time these regulations go in and they can resemble laws and they can have fees and they can have enforcement power much like laws normally do. So tell me your thoughts down there in the comment section. I'm sure if this catches on and people really want to have a conversation about it, we'll have our pro and anti-bureaucrats down there having a, a deep conversation about how the bureaucrats, they help the system move smoothly no matter who's in place, who's in political power, and then the anti-bureaucrats are going to say, but I don't want to pay that extra fine. I don't want all these extra bloat taxes that are being put together in order to fund these agencies. There's an intense battle to be had there. Just throw your comments down there in the comment section. And if there is a battle, try to be nice to each other. I don't really foresee that happening, but let's jump into our first article. This one comes from PolitiZoom. SCOTUS undoes a half century of environmental progress. Woe is us. So you can see where we're starting on this one. PolitiZoom, I've been reading a few more of their things recently. They have a little bit more of a liberal bias. So we're going to start with that perspective. And then we have the second article that will cover the conservative perspective. We're trying to give a fair representation of both points of view. All right, so let's really talk about the history here. Quote, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling in Sackett versus U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, reinterpreting the Clean Water Act to eliminate longstanding protections for millions of acres of wetlands. Five justices in the new conservative court narrowed the definition of waters of the United States, often referred to as WOTUS, limiting the reach of the act, one of the most successful, effective, and widespread supported pieces of legislation ever codified in the United States. The court's ruling came five months after the U.S. EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers issue a long-anticipated regulation clarifying the WOTUS definition. The court's decision to hear Sackett, the Sackett case as EPA was finalizing its new regulation was highly unusual. It marks the latest instance in which conservative justices ignored traditional principles of judicial restraint in their haste to rewrite laws that protect people and the environment. End quote. So you, you see a lot of the framing there, and it does sound like, wow, okay, SCOTUS, they are stepping in, and they are outright stopping the EPA from writing new rules. What they don't tell you is, and we would get to a quote from the other article here, is that the EPA 
has had different rules in that have been made under this Clean Water Act before that have ended up in front of the Supreme Court and have been down, struck down before. A lot of them were also of the nature of expanding what is acceptable as a waterway of the state, basically. Any water that comes under the jurisdiction of the U.S. government. And a lot of these rules were a little bit stepping over. They were saying, well, anything that does X is a waterway. Any water that resides within X is a waterway. So you can see that this has happened before. This is not the first time that SCOTUS has stepped in. I do agree that it is kind of weird that they're stepping in on these rules before it's 100% finalized. It does feel like maybe it's a little bit of judicial activism. But also, I don't necessarily agree with the rule itself because it does actually basically say that you can, if there's any pollutant, whether it be rock, dirt, anything like that, not just chemical pollutants, then they can actually halt your building of your house or construction or moving of different things on your what should be your property. So I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I do agree, of course, that if an industry is polluting or even if you personally are polluting, you're putting too much fertilizer on your yard and the extra runoff goes down to a stream, you get an algae bloom or it gets into the waterway where a cow is. I think there's a serious conversation that needs to be had there because extra phosphorus in the waterways can be dangerous to a lot of habitats. If there's an algae bloom in some local pond because you're over-fertilizing your area, it could kill off all the fish because it's sucking the oxygen out of the water. So there is, of course, a very important conversation that could be had on that front beyond just industrial chemicals or industrial waste. But I don't necessarily think that the moving of dirts and ro- dirt and rocks which could, of course, cause sentiment to flow into some of these waterways, I don't think that should fall into a pollutant that affects the waterway. But that's just my opinion on that one. Maybe you have a different one. Tell me about it down in the comment section. So what hard work has it undone? Let's at least go into that. Because they said that it's undone a lot of hard work here. Let's try to highlight that. Quote, the Sackett decision undoes a half century of progress generated by the Clean Water Act. Almost 90 million acres of formerly protected waterlands now face an existential threat from polluters and developers, said Sam Sanker. So if you notice here, it's not just polluters, it is developers too. So this rule that was a part of the Clean Water Act that the EPA had made, it actually is protecting from development of land. Meaning, you know, you can't just buy up a track of land, throw down a whole bunch of dirt in maybe a wetland area and turn it into something that could be a residential zone or a housing zone. And, you know, maybe there's some valid arguments there as to we don't want to ruin those pristine areas just to put up a whole bunch of cookie cutter houses. So there, there's some validity to that part of the argument here, or at least I think there's something that could be discussed further about it. Quote said Sam Sanker, vice president of programs at Earth Justice. Quote, this decision is the culmination of the industry's decade-long push to get conservative courts to do what Congress refused to do. The court's decision to deregulate wetlands will hurt everyone living in the United States. Earth Justice will continue to fight to protect our waters to ensure the health of communities and ecosystems for decades to come. End quote. Um, 
I'll just point out right here. No, this will this will not help me in any way, shape, or form. There are no wetlands around me. There is no conflated misconception of what is a waterway around here. This will not affect me at all. And he said, oh, it'll affect Americans everywhere. Of course, it may affect some other people in Virginia. There's no doubt. But this is really going to affect a lot of our southern states, a few of our northern states, who like maybe Seattle or, sorry, Washington, around that area where there are lots of different tributaries that run out into the Pacific Ocean. Any state that borders the ocean, like Virginia, maybe on the far eastern side. But I'll tell you now, in the middle of this state, that we, we don't have any wetlands. I'll tell you now, I'm in the Shenandoah Valley. There's not a wetland because we are in an area that has mountains. So all the water is just flowing basically in one place, down to the Shenandoah River, and then that is flowing down as well. So I think he's being a little heavy-handed here, but I understand what he's saying. He's trying to make a sweeping statement. This is going to affect everybody. It may affect a large majority of people, but there are other areas where they're not going to see the impact of this whatsoever. And maybe this actually gives an opportunity for, okay, so the state has come in, the federal government has come in and said, this is the rule, the EPA. And then SCOTUS is striking it down saying, no, no, no. You can't just have an overarching rule like this. Maybe this is another step in their attempt to really get these sort of regulations and rules given back to the state. Hey, if Florida wants to come up with a Wetlands Protection Act through their bureaucracy or even their legislator, go right ahead. But you can't have a sweeping federal one. Maybe that's a rationalization on my part trying to defend the Supreme Court. But I do think it would be an interesting point to discuss. Maybe they're not as anti-EPA as you think. Maybe they're just more pro-state. But that's me playing a little bit of defense for them. But that's what I want to do. I want to point out some issues in both articles so you can try to get a good understanding or at least a contrary understanding to what they're actually telling you. Because the other reason I have both of these articles is you can see that the dividing line is Republican, Democrat, more left-leaning, more right-leaning, and everybody has their narrative. And what I find really appalling about the next article from the right is they're actually using an appeal to your ethics or an ethos appeal to your emotions within the first few lines. So let's actually jump to that article. It comes from the Washington Examiner. Supreme Court delivers huge win for affordable housing and rule of law. You see how differently that is framed right off the bat? I mean, you would expect nothing less if you've been listening or reading American politics for a long time. But when you first read that headline, it really highlights or sets the tone, gives you a frame of how you should be viewing what we're talking about. So let's get to that ethos appeal that that I was just talking about. Sorry, it's actually a pathos appeal. Quote, for 16 years, a family wanted to build a home on an empty lot near a lake in Idaho. When they began to move dirts and rock to grade their property for construction, the Environmental Protection Agency forced them to stop and ordered them to pay a $40,000 fine a day until they put the dirt and rocks back where they had found them. The house was never built. This Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled that the Ohio fam- sorry, Idaho family, the Sacketts, had been wrongly obstructed and could go ahead with their house. The Supreme Court's decision in Sackett versus EPA will liberate a landmass the size of California for development, end quote. And yes, I may have put on my little bit of dramatic voice, but you can see what they're doing here. They're telling you a story of a family who has been 
had a hard time developing on their land because of the EPA. They're getting hit with fines every single day until the dirt and rock goes back exactly to where it needs to be. They're appealing to your emotions. Now, where I agree, a 40000 fine a day for dirt and rocks, that, that it seems absurd in my opinion. But maybe what SCOTUS could have done is said, hey, okay, I want you to revisit this rule in lower penalties. Or maybe that could have been an amicus brief from a party that was involved on either side saying, hey, we want the EPA or we think the EPA should just lower this fine because we don't think it is appropriate. Or maybe even it could have been an amicus brief from someone on their side saying, well, how would the court feel if we would suggest to the EPA that they lower the fine and, but they can keep this rule in place that protects a lot of these wetlands. I think that would be an interesting way forward, too. But, of course, we can't have any bipartisan solution. It has to be either this rule stands or this rule doesn't stand, end of all. So let's get to the history that I was talking about. Let's get to those other times that the EPA has made a rule that gave them a little bit too much sway, and the court has stepped in and said, uh-uh, not today, not today. So the clean... Quote, the Clean Water Act of 1972 gives the EPA authority to regulate the discharge of pollutants into the water of the United States. While the definition of pollutants is broad, encompassing everything from chemical waste to rock, sand, and dirt, it is least clear what pollutant means. The term, quote, waters of the United States is even vaguer. At first, the EPA used a broad, agreed, narrow broadly agreed narrow definition that included only waters that could affect interstate or foreign commerce and the wetlands adjacent to those waters. But through new regulations, it steadily expanded that definition, giving itself more and more control over more land. In 1986, the agency issued its Migratory Birds Rule, which asserted EPA CWA jurisdiction over any water anywhere that could or would be used as a habitat by migrating birds. The EPA admitted in court that this definition of waters of the United States granted them jurisdiction over every swimming pool puddle ditch in the country. The Supreme Court rejected this definition in 2001. Qu- end quote. You get the idea. And it goes on to reject a new one that they put into place in 2006. Now, I do agree that when the EPA outright says, yes, we would technically have jurisdiction over any bit of water that could be used as a habitat, that is really broad. When they actively agree to that, then it should be struck down. But maybe what they were getting at is actually not a bad idea here. And I know I've said that a few times, but I'm trying to give both sides their due because you have two direct articles that have two completely point different point of views and maybe there's some negotiating room that either side isn't quite seeing here so maybe the migratory bird rule actually made a lot of sense because we don't want to disrupt the habitats of birds that have to migrate if they can't make it down to southern america if they're stuck for some reason because their normal stopping point the lake where they used to go and grab a few fish like dive in grab some fish or they relied on the habitat, the environment that was around that lake in order to feed themselves going down to the southern regions of the South America or even Central America. If they had those patterns disrupted, maybe they would die off. And then we could see that, oh, well now that they're dying off, the other bird population or other species that they kept in check in some environments would go crazy. 
It's kind of the inverse invasive species effect where, oh, you have an invasive species comes in and it doesn't have a natural predator, so it kind of takes over. Now, in this case, if we interfered in the ecosystem and removed a natural predator, the prey would just go absolutely crazy and they would take over the environment, the ecosystem, and they could possibly throw everything off balance and disrupt other animals in that area. That is a possibility. Now, do I think that there is a wide swath of areas where birds stop so it could be exploited to control a lot more water than the EPA had access to before? Yes, I do agree that that is a possibility. But maybe that rule, in theory, was good. It was just implemented in a wrong-headed way. And see, that's, that's the thing with a lot of different regulatory agencies. I feel like their intentions normally are really good. I do agree that with some of the talk that bureaucrats just want to gain more power, but that I don't think they want to gain more power for power's sake most of the time. I think they want to gain certain powers so that they can put into place a good regulation, a rule that will help people or different local environments, communities, and then once they have a taste of that power, they start to like it a little bit more and the access it gives them to certain resources. I don't necessarily think they're there being a Machiavelli sitting back. Oh, yes, we will use this power to suppress the people. No, they have good intentions. And if you don't believe in that, if you're a little bit more cynical than I am, you could say I'm naive. But I also had this conversation with somebody yesterday. If you can't have hope, if you can't try to see the best intentions of people, then you're going to become very cynical, very nihilistic, and you might lose that sense of why we're here, why we're here on this earth. We're here to cooperate, to love, to grow, and be good stewards of the earth that if you're a Christian that God gave us, or if you're not a Christian, the universe gave us, or just good stewards of the world that we were forced into birth or forced into when we were birthed. So, I think we have to always try to look out for the good intents of these agencies and just make sure that we're checking them when they overreach a little bit on purpose or on accident. So what's the reality that this article is going to posit here? Quote, despite what you see in the liberal presses, Sackett versus EPA did not gut the Clean Water Act. Factories, power plants, and homes that abut a body of water are still subject to EPA jurisdiction. So is a property that abuts wetlands directly connected to any standing body of water. But homeowners like the Sackets, whose property is separated from the wetlands by a 30-foot road that touches a creek that feeds into a lake, no longer have to worry. The country used to be able to build things. But starting in the 1970s, Congress and the federal government have made it increasingly difficult for anyone to jump through all the regulatory hoops necessary to get projects started. More needs to be done, especially in Congress. But last Thursday, a unanimous Supreme Court acknowledgement the EPA had gone too far, and that's a good start. So, end quote. So there is, of course, a, a really big criticism there, which is, in the 1970s, Congress has basically stepped in and they said, no more. We're not building anything anymore. We're not going to allow Americans to build. That's unfair. I understand where they're coming from. They're trying to rile up people when they read that. That is unfair. They have definitely put up a lot of legislative or, sorry, regulations and rules and different hoops to jump through. But they're not trying to just outright say, no, you can't build anything. 
They're saying you have to build responsibly. But I do agree that there are lots of regulations that can get in the way. I talked about one, of, wow, it would have probably been two weeks ago in California, where they're trying to build new affordable housing for people that are a little bit less fortunate, and they're running up against their own rule that all these buildings have to have certain green specifications when it comes to how they're powered, the different insulation materials that they use, which is actually driving up the cost. It's making it harder for the companies to build this affordable housing at a good rate for the state, but also they're getting caught up in all these different hoops that they have to jump through in order to actually build something, and it's delaying the projects over and over again. So it is true that it is becoming harder to build things, not overall, but in certain jurisdictions and in certain ways, and these hoops are becoming you know, a little bit tedious to jump through. But we've also created regulations and rules that have limited the amount of pollutants that we have put in the air that have allowed us to ha- live in a healthier society that is more sustainable and is actually looking a little bit more towards the future when we're building something rather than the immediate gratification that we get from building it. So, th- of course, as I've been saying this whole time, you are probably tired of it at this point. There is a middle ground. There is a area where we can come together and maybe cut some of these rules back, but also have strong rules and regulations that enforce a certain point of view. Do I always agree with that point of view? No. But there's always a case to be made. There's always some data, some statistics that can be pointed out that could sway any rational person as to why some of these rules and regulations are important. Though, as a person who's a business major, I do understand that they can be very tedious, and sometimes they can just outright be useless, or they can just outright be overly intrusive in the business of anybody in the United States, even private landowners and people that are trying to build their house, like the Sackets. So, middle ground, we should try to reach it. Now you got the summary. Basically, you could have listened to the entire podcast and just listened to that five-second segment, and you would have gotten the summary. We need to find a middle ground. Oh, look at that. I'm just resorting to the the middle ground position, which is a fallacy, of course. There's not always a middle ground, but we should try to find one if we can. All right, so let's jump to our last article. This one comes from the Cato Institute. It's World Trade Week, and apparently the start of silly season in Washington. So they set out this article in a very interesting way. So let's, let's quote them and see what they say. Quote, a well-known fact in the nation's capital that politicians' rhetoric gets progressively detached from reality as the November election approaches. During a race's final few months, inconvenient things like facts and logic tend to get thrown out the window as candidates get desperate for votes. On trade, at least, it seems President Biden has kicked off the 2024 silly season more than a year early. In particular, Biden's recent proclamation announcing World Trade Week 2023 and implicitly justifying his tariff and subsidy-heavy worker-centric trade policy stated that, quote, for decades, the middle class and thriving towns across America were hollowed out as good-paying jobs moved overseas and factories at home closed down, end quote. Where this claim Were this claim in the middle of a early autumn stump speech from Biden or former President Trump, we may have given it a pass. Really? You would have given it a pass if it's not true? 
That's that's what I found really interesting when I was first reading this. So if it's election season, you know, you know the rhetoric's getting big, so you're just going to let it go. No, no, you should still point out the BS. But, you know, that's beyond the point. Let's finish the quote. Quote, but since the claims comes in the middle of the World Trade Week proclamation from the sitting president of the United States, we feel compelled to correct the record, end quote. Or, no offense, Cato Institute, you are a conservative-leading organization. You want to take a shot at Biden. And there's nothing against you for it. That It is part of your purview as a conservative-leading organization to point out when the president is not saying something that's really true. And I think that it's interesting that you said, well, if it was in election season, we'd give him a little bit of leeway. No, you should still call him out for it, even if it's not Joe Biden, even if it was President Trump, or if it was maybe a future nominee, DeSantis, even if you agree with them on a lot of their other policies, but they're saying something that's false, then no, call it out and give the pop- population, the people that want to come to you for information, give them the facts. So the real question is, what are the facts? What does this hollowing out look like? Or as the Cato Institute is going to argue here, what does this non-hollowing out really look like? Quote, while it is undeniably true that the United States has fewer manufacturing workers today than in the 1970s or 1980s, and that most jobs, even male-dominated blue-collar jobs, are in services, American industrial jobs have not all been shipped overseas. As explained in a 2022 Cato paper, globalization undoubtedly eliminated some U.S. manufacturing jobs, especially labor-intensive, low-wage industries like textiles, apparel, and furniture. But the main long-term drivers of U.S. manufacturing job loss are productivity gains and a shift in U.S. consumption from goods to services. Thus, countries around the world, including ones with large and persistent trade surpluses and active industrial and labor policies, have experienced their own, if not larger, declines in manufacturing jobs. And recent increases in the U.S. manufacturing jobs have been accompanied by staggering U.S. manufacturing productivity. End quote. So I think a lot of the things they point out there is interesting and important. I think it's weird, in my opinion, that they're bringing up, oh, well, in other countries, it's a larger, it's a larger decrease in the amount of manufacturing jobs. It's, there's a larger amount of decrease in the blue-collar jobs. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't necessarily care. If we're doing a complete comparative study between the United States, if Biden said, well, compared to our allies or compared to our enemies, we have lost more of middle-class jobs to blah, 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 then I would care about that point. But it just feels like they're throwing it in there saying, well, no, no, we, we've lost jobs, but not as much as some other countries. But I do agree with their points that productivity has gone up and we are shifting to a services economy. If you look at what was happening to Britain after the Great War, as they were starting to have a slow, slow decline, they stopped manufacturing goods and the manufacturing goods that they made were not necessarily of the highest quality, so they weren't shipping them out. So they started to go into a services economy. They started focusing really heavy on financial services, which is what we're doing here in the United States. It seems to be, at least in the modern system, a sign of a slowly declining nation that's no longer purely based on manufacturing. And I'm not trying to say the U.S., oh, it's having its darkest days, we're falling down. That's not what I'm implying. I'm implying that the thing that built this country was manufacturing and innovation and technology, 
And the same thing has helped build up China. It's building up Brazil. It's building up India. As countries are raising or rising through the pyramid of economics that we have across the entire world, as they come out of the third world countries, they become middle economies, and then they become first world economies. Manufacturing is a large part of that because there's a lot of cheap labor in these areas because not everybody's educated. Not everybody has gone to school as much as in other countries. Maybe their infrastructure and schooling isn't as good. And maybe they just don't have a lot of options when it comes to other jobs that would provide a lot of money. So their labor is cheap. They're willing to go into manufacturing locations and provide a service to the company in order to make goods that can get shipped around the world. So you can see that as people get raised up, they start to have better education. As they have better education, they have to have more high-paying jobs to entice them. Normally, those are not manufacturing jobs. So you can see, of course, why we would start getting away from manufacturing jobs here in the United States, especially after World War II, where a lot of military officers either came back or were able to go to college during that time period. We've seen a rise in education, so we're probably going to see a lowering in manufacturing. This seems to be a trend that we can see over the last century or so between a lot of different economies. It doesn't always hold true, and there are different situations everywhere, but that seems to be a trend. And then, of course, productivity. We have people that, well, they've probably been there a little bit longer so they can do their jobs faster. We also have automation, and these are different aspects of the productivity equation that has been rising. And also, we can just eliminate some people nowadays. Software can do what people used to do. You know, we used to have to have actual, if you look at the science programs, we used to actually have to have calculators, like females and males, in the room doing the math and projections of all the formulas. Now you can offsource that to a computer. That used to be an entire department. Now one or two computers can probably run all those special calculations. Now, of course, some of those jobs that were the calculators themselves were transferred into technicians who can service the computer and make sure that the calculations are coming out right. But you can see that as technology increases, innovation increases, we can slowly cut some jobs. So I do agree there that productivity has also gone up. And that means that we don't necessarily need as many manufacturing jobs as we've had in the past. So Biden's statements about globalization, about, oh, we're shipping all these manufacturing jobs off to other countries, they are true to some degree. But the Cato Institution's point is it's not all bad. Just because we're shipping those jobs off to other countries, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end of days. Some of these people can shift into different positions they can get a different job here in the United States. And there's already been a natural shift in the economy. There's more service jobs available. So those people are, just because they're leaving manufacturing, doesn't mean they don't have a job. The Cato Institute does point out that there are certain towns where the factory used to be the center of everything and they've really gotten hurt. But that's not true all across the United States. So the Cato Institute they're just pointing out a few of Biden's flaws, and I don't agree with everything they say, but I also don't agree with everything Biden says. So again, look at me taking the middle ground here, but it's more about the information. Do a little bit more reading up on this if you want, if you're really intrigued by this one, because the neoliberal world order seems to be falling a little bit. Biden's offering a lot more protectionist tariffs and a lot of homegrown industry subsidies, and maybe, you know, that trend that I talked about where oh, we start to fade, we start to do more services in the economy. 
maybe that trend can be bucked and we can see a new philosophy here that you actually have to be a little bit more protectionist in order to spur new growth within your country. Now, it may hurt in the short term because we're actually not trading like we should. We're not, you know, engaging in proper competition, but maybe it will spur new industries that can keep the American economy vital for a while. Maybe not. We'll, we'll see. The beautiful thing about economics is it's always evolving. And every situation is different. China's situation is not going to apply to the United States. Finland's situation isn't going to apply to India. So we'll see how all this pans out. I think it's a, an interesting one. I actually just read a book about the free markets, and it, it gave me a little bit different perspective. I thought it was pretty straight, cut, and clear. Oh, we've come to this conclusion over the last few years, and it was a lot more back and forth and a lot more arguing than I had initially understood. So we'll, we'll see how everything pans out. All right, let's get away from all the, you know, the doom and gloom. Oh, America, we may not be revitalized. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Upworthy, a Finnish teacher. Oh, wow, look at that. I was just talking about Finland. A Finnish teacher stumbled upon three bear cubs playing in a circle, and they look like tiny humans. So if you've interacted with kids, you know that kids love to mess around. They love to play fight. And even if these kids aren't humans, that still holds true. Quote, Vatalitary... Sorry for mispronouncing your name, my man. Malconahan, who captures on camera wildlife and magical sites around his country in his free time, quickly found a spot to discreetly capture the once-in-a-lifetime shots he stumbled upon, and the results are truly fascinating. Before his eyes were a mother bear and three of her adorable cubs, who, unaware of Malconahan's presence, put on quite a show. End quote. And trust me, it was a really fun show. Quote, forming a circle in the gathering, the cubs stood on their hind legs, playing with each other, almost as if they were dancing. Speaking to Board Panda, Malachian, I think I pronounced his name three different ways this time. Once again, I'm sorry, my man, revealed, quote, the cubs behaved like little children. They were playing and even started a few friendly fights, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys playing around or you want to read any of today's articles, so there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip. And shout out to the website, Your Daily Flip. I actually just put up a blog post talking about an interesting topic from another book that I was reading. And, you know, it may be a little bit fresh, a little bit green. I may not be the best blog poster yet, but go over there and check it out if you have the time. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.